page 21 in those notebooks, page 21 today, and we'll look at the material beginning there that is part of our series, the title of which is on the front cover and on the screen behind me, Making Peace, How to Overcome Conflict. And as I say, today is the fourth of six weeks in that. So we'll be looking at page 21 in, in just a moment. I want to remind you of, though, a couple of things that are listed on the back of your notebook. And if either of these applies to you, please pay attention and act, uh, sign up and act accordingly. But down at the bottom, November 19, Saturday, November 19, just a few weeks at our house is our next newcomer's brunch. And as the name suggests, it is brunch, and it's at our house, but it is for newcomers. And newcomers are defined as people who have never been to the brunch. So maybe you're an old comer and you, for whatever reason, weren't able to make the brunch when it was scheduled before. So in all seriousness, we would love to, to have you. Uh, but we need to know who's coming. So you're, you're welcome to come and invited to come and encouraged to do so. But we need to know. So you let us know by, before you leave today, going to the information center over by the windows here to my right. Let them know that uh, you're planning on coming. And they have an invitation for that, that they will give you that. It has a map to our house, our phone number, the time, all of that. And you don't need to bring anything. You just need to get there 10 a.m. to noon, Saturday, November 19, at our house. There's no program with that. I don't teach through anything. It's just brunch, us getting to know you, you getting to know us, uh, and no obligation to you for anything. We're not selling anything there. Uh, just, as I say, getting to know you. If you have any questions about us, that you'd like to ask. That gives you an informal setting to do that. And of course, I'm always happy to try to answer whatever you have. So you could do that at that time, but it is, is just a fellowship and a brunch, and we'd love to have you there. So sign up, register for that at the Information Center before you leave today. Then just below that, on the back cover of your notebook, it tells you that the following day, Sunday, November 20, is our next baptism. We schedule baptisms throughout the year, and uh, the next one is on that day, November 20 and three weeks from today. And baptism is something that Jesus commanded for all of those who claim to be his followers. As a matter of fact, part of following Jesus means obeying him by being baptized. It's one of the first things one is to do when they become a follower of Jesus is to signify that publicly by identifying with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus through baptism. And that's why baptism has you being dunked in water. Because it symbolizes death, burial, and resurrection. So if that's never happened with you if, you, if you've been baptized, but that baptism was not immersing you, symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then you have not been baptized as Jesus says in Scripture. That's the way it always happened in Scripture, for the reason that I gave. So it's very important. That's why we offer it. And that's why you need to do it if you've come to Christ. Now, if you have never come to Christ and you don't know what that is, then that's the first step. And the good news is you can do that before you leave today. You're going to see that our entire lesson today is centered around that very thing and as it applies to making peace with God and with others. So Newcomer's Brunch on November 19, Baptism on November 20. See me about the baptism. As you leave today, just say, hey, I'd like to talk to you this week about baptism. I'll give you my phone number, my email, and then we can set a time to talk about that. Okay? Page 21 today in our series, Making Peace. And let me review 
what we have seen thus far in the three weeks that we've covered in our series. We've seen that everyone has conflict, all of us. The world being as it is, and the way the Bible describes as it is, is, is fallen. So it is not as it was originally intended. And as a result, there is conflict in our relationships with one another, nation uh, in conflict with nation. Conflict is a regular part of our existence. And we all respond to conflict one of three ways. So in the opening pages, in fact, the first seven pages of your, your notebook, there is, a, there is a graph, and that graph is a half sphere. Uh, it's on page six, for instance, if you, if you care to look at it again. But it tells you that there are three major ways that people respond to, to conflict. And that half, uh, half moon, half sphere, shows on the left side a pie uh, shape that goes to the left that says one way to respond to conflict is through escape, escape responses. And many practice that. I've got conflict, but I just want to avoid it. And it gives some of the ways that people try to avoid it. We saw those. If you are engaged in escape responses, then you are a peace faker. But then on the right side, there's another set of responses. And those are equally and, and, and sometimes more violent, literally, and more, more difficult, uh, but equally wrong and in error. To the right of that, there's another pie shape that says another way to respond is by attack. So there are escape responses on the left side, and on the right, there are attack responses. And there are various ways in which we attack. And if you're engaged in that, by attacking by your words or physically or through the legal process, then you are not a peace faker, you're a peace breaker. So you've got the escape responses, the attack responses, a peace faker and a peace breaker, but then at the top, you have peacemaking responses. And of course, if you're engaged in those, you're not a peace faker or breaker, you are a peace maker. You want to be a peacemaker. If you want to fit in the category that Jesus spoke of, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. And peacemaking is an evidence that you know God. And an unwillingness to engage in peacemaking is an evidence that you may not know God. So it is a very serious matter indeed as to where you are on that slope. So in a fallen world, we all have conflict and we all react to that conflict, escape, attack, or peacemaking, peace faking, breaking, or peacemaking. We need to be people who are always, now hear this, always willing to be at peace then. Always willing to be at peace. But recognizing it's not always possible to be at peace. Always willing, but it may not be possible. The Bible says as much in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. It says, as much as it depends on you, as far as it depends on you, if it is possible, live at peace with everyone. As much as you can do, and if it is possible, recognizing that it may not be possible, but if it is, you are always willing, knowing that, True reconciliation, true peace with another requires their cooperation, which, of course, you can't force. So, though I can't always have 
interpersonal peace. Interpersonal. One person to another. I can't always have interpersonal peace. I can always have personal peace. So I'm always willing to pursue that interpersonal peace between you and me, between me and another. That's because I'm characterized by peace. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. If that doesn't characterize you, then you may not have the Spirit. That can be remedied today. But one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace and the pursuit of peacemaking. So I'm always willing, I may not be able. If I can't have interpersonal peace, I can always have, though, personal peace. So I may be with someone in relationship of some type with someone who is bent on making life miserable for me. And they can't. And why can't they? Well, we've seen, because you know stuff. And let me remind you of some of the stuff you know. You know why you are in this situation. If you don't know, you should know. And if you didn't come in here knowing, I'm going to remind you. But you're not in this situation because it's some random event outside the control of God. And you and I slip into that kind of thinking. I'm in this stupid relationship. Why am I in this thing? There's no reason. In fact, there's, there, there's no possible reason anyone could give for any good that could come out of this. And God says, uh-uh. He says, everything that I allow into your life, include adverse circumstances that include adverse relationships, is designed for you to grow. We saw that in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. How can I have personal peace in the midst of a lack of interpersonal peace? Because I know some stuff. What do I know? You know that the testing of what you believe works patience, and patience develops maturity. So you know why this is happening. It's not a random event. And God has designed to produce growth in you in the midst of that. That's one thing you know. Here's the other thing you know. You know not only something about why this is happening, you know something about the person who doesn't want peace with you. They're clearly not a peacemaker. That's an indication they don't know God. And Romans 1 says something about those, those people. It says that in a sense, they know God because everyone knows there is a God. Only the fool says in his heart that there is no God. All around him, he sees the evidence that there's a God. Romans 1 says he knows that. But it also teaches, secondly, he doesn't want to know God. And so he suppresses, he holds down what he knows about God. And then the third thing you know about that person who does not want peace, they know God, don't want to know God, and you know that it renders them a fool. That's the Bible's language. Romans chapter 1 and verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became, and it says fools. Unable to apply what they know, that's what a fool is. Unwilling to apply what they know is what a fool is. So you have the upper hand with this person who refuses to have interpersonal peace with you because you know about them. You know more about them than they know about themselves. You read a book about them. The book's written by somebody who made them and who knows all about it. You know why this is happening, you know about them, and you thirdly know the end game. You thirdly know what God is ultimately going to achieve through this. 
He's going to achieve your growth, but he's also going to achieve his glory. And that's the reason for which he does and allows all things his glory. What's his glory? The display of his character. And in the midst of this, you are going to be able to display his character in ways that you would not otherwise be able. And so he has deigned, ordained, this situation for you to display his character to show his, his glory. So here's what that means, because you know all that stuff. It means that the person is unable to any longer push your buttons. If you really get what I'm saying here, then the person will no longer be able to push your buttons. Why? Because the external stimuli, I just like to say that, that always results in you blowing up, throwing something, slamming a door, pouting, walking out, muttering, whatever it is you do, shooting, <laughs> whatever it is you do. The, the external stimuli is attached. It's wired to something. Think of it as a button on the outside of your person, on the outside of your body, that's attached to something. And guess what the Bible says it's attached to? It's attached to your heart. And you can detach the button from your heart. That button can be detached from your heart because your heart has changed and no longer reacts to that button. Because you, you know this stuff. Now, there's been an internal change. We're going to see how it's affected in a bit. Such that your heart is different and those buttons that could be pushed and are attached directly to your heart and get a heart response right away and have been for years, they're not getting that response anymore. Now think about the person who does not want interpersonal peace with you when you've made that disconnection. Well, that's kind of maddening, isn't it? I mean, if you disconnect the button now, the so-called button is pushed and nothing happens. And it's been all of this time a means of control. Every time I push that button, see? Same response. Got them where I want them. Like a puppet on a string. And then all of a sudden you don't do that anymore. And that drives a person who wants control crazy. I've, I've seen it. It drives the person who wants control crazy. So... I made that snide comment about there being, not being any food in the fridge. And that always pushes her buttons. And nothing happens. Hey, I said there's no food in the fridge. I'm trying to, nothing's happening. I make that snide comment about that, or I did my long, loud sigh about there being no, no clean clothes in the closet. Or, I said my usual, why do I have to do everything around here? You don't do anything around here. That always gets a response, and, and it ain't happening. What's going on with you? And the answer is there's been an internal change of heart such that that button is no longer wired to my new heart. 
it requires a heart change. There's been a disconnect because I'm now, it's now wired to a different heart. Now, how does that rewiring happen? You can get the x-ray, and that's what I've been trying to do for the last couple of weeks, is give you God's x-ray from his word to show you and me our hearts. But it's one thing to see the x-ray and say, yep, I see that. Yep, that's me. Yes, I've got that ailment. Yes, I've got an internal problem. It's one thing to see the problem. It's another thing to be able to do my own heart surgery. And in the physical realm, of course, I can't do that, can I? And in the physical realm, you know, I can, I can do things to try to keep my heart reasonably healthy and, and all of that. But the Bible teaches that in the spiritual realm, using the heart as a metaphor for the seat of the person, that there is, there is nothing that we can do on our own to improve our condition and certainly nothing that we can do on our own to change our condition. Well, thanks for that. I show up for three and a half weeks and you tell me, wish we could help you. Good luck with that. But here's the thing. I know a really good spiritual heart surgeon. And I'd like to take this time to tell you about him. And that's what verse 20, or page 21 is about the power for peacemaking. You know, how do I do this? I mean, how do I really, how does this disconnect happen such that the buttons that once resulted in reactions, that diminishes and disappears? How does that happen? It requires a change of heart. So top of page 21, if my own heart is indeed a veritable idol factory, then how can I find the humility and grace to desire and to initiate peace? And the answer is a new heart. The bad news is our hearts are, according to Jeremiah, deceitful above all things beyond cure. Our condition is beyond cure, but notice I have underlined and italicized there, beyond cure if left to ourselves. But the good news, and that's literally what the word gospel means, the good news is that God has taken initiative to reconcile us both to himself and to empower us to be reconciled to others in the gospel. So first I want you to see that the gospel gives us peace first of all. Before pursuing peace with other people, it gives us peace with God. Now before we look at what scripture says about us having peace with God and how that's attained, for you it may not seem like you need that. And you're sitting here and you're saying, peace with God, I'm, you know, really me and God are pretty tight. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that from people over the years. They'll say to me, oh, uh, you know, I've, I, from a kid, when I, was, when I was three, I mean, and four and five, I just found myself just talking to God. And God's always helped me in different situations. And I'm good with God. I like God. Me and God are on good terms. I mean, really, that's what people say. So here I come along and I say, the gospel gives you peace with God. And you go, I'm not God's enemy. I don't have any issues with God. Well, that is your subjective view of you. 
That's the way you think of you. But of course, the way you think of you may or may not be accurate, right? How many times have you heard people say something like this? You know, I like to think of myself as fill in the blank. You hear this kind of thing all the time. I like to think of myself as a good person. Well, good, but you're not. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad you like to think of yourself that way, but I hate to break it to you. I like to think of myself as a generous person. I mean, I, we, have you ever heard anyone say, I like to think of myself as a jerk. <laughs> I like to think of myself as an evil person, a sinful person. Nobody says that. Nobody naturally thinks that about themselves. Nobody. So the idea that you might sit here and say, you're telling me I've got to have peace with God, me and God are tight, you know what I would recommend is let's hear what God has to say about that. Rather than what you like to think of yourself as. I like to think of myself as 6'4", tall and handsome. And why are you all laughing? <laughs> That's my subjective view of myself. I like to think of myself as. The mirror gives me an objective view, right? And the Bible's a mirror in which you see yourself face to face as you really are, not like you want to think of yourself as. So when I say, you need peace with God, I'm encouraging you to stop with the, but I'm already good with that. Take some time to think about what it is that God says about that. Further, one, you may not think you need it. Secondly, you may not think it's that important. Okay, I need it. But, you know, my real problem's not with God. My real problem was with this guy at work. Now, if God could take him out, we'd be, we'd be okay. But my real problem is with this other person that I see every day, it's not with God. And so, okay, preacher type, maybe I do need that, but that's not my real problem. But understand this as well. Every other problem you have flows from your problem with God. Every issue that we have on the horizontal plane, people to people, first starts with our problem on the vertical plane, people to God. It goes back to the beginning. We saw that briefly a few weeks ago. I won't repeat it now, but just remind you that God made man. God made man in his image, and it was when man severed by his actions, by his disobedience, his relationship with God, that things went south with people. If it were not for a severed relationship with God, we would not have the problems we have with people. And so not only do you, do you need it, it's the most important relationship that you need. And everything else flows from that. And so I encourage you to give ear then to what God says about us and what we need. Page 21. The gospel is the good news that the king has come as promised in the Holy Scriptures in the person and loving work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Prince of Peace, Savior of the world, Lord of all, 
who died on the cross for our sins and was resurrected from the dead, sending forth his spirit and word to give us life through a new heart and spirit, forgiving all who will believe in him and crediting to us his perfect righteousness, reconciling and uniting us to the Father and adopting us as dearly loved children and giving us the supreme gift of knowing and enjoying God in Christ forever. <laughs> There's a mouthful. But if you understand even part of that, it's a beautiful mouthful. To see what God who made us has done and is doing to, to remake us. We need to be remade. Because there's something wrong with the original model. It begins in the heart, and God is remaking, and God is making new hearts and new people through the good news of the gospel. So what we will do now is break this down under these two headings. The gospel gives us peace with God and the gospel gives us peace then with others. Okay. So first, the gospel is, page 21, the good news, the king has come. As promised in the Holy Scriptures, in the person and loving work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Prince of Peace, Savior of the world, Lord of all. All right, let me bounce through that. The good news is this, the king has come. Jesus is given the title King, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why? Because the, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the creator. And the creator owns and the creator rules. So it begins with the fact that, that Jesus made you and therefore owns you. And has the right then to rule you. So he is, he is the king. Why is he the king? Because he's the ruler. And how is he the ruler? Because he made you. The king has come as promised in the holy scriptures. The writings, that's what scripture means. Holy, they're different writings than any other writings in the world. Holy scriptures. Otherwise known as the Bible. And this one who has made us and therefore is our king has spoken to us has said to us in the words of a book what his design is for us, what is wrong with us, and what his solution to that is. The king has come, and that was promised in the Holy Scriptures. And what was promised? That one would come, and has now come, in the person and loving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we call him Lord Jesus Christ. Let me break that down for you, because it's important. Christ is not his last name. We say Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. He is Jesus the Christ. Christ is his title. It means the anointed one. It's from the Greek word Christos, and that's the same as the Hebrew word in the first part of your Bible, Mashiach, Messiah, anointed one. In the Holy Scriptures, the first part was promised one who would come, who would be the anointed one. Who would carry out God's work now of reconciling people who are apart from him to himself. He is Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. 
And why is his name Jesus? Even his name means something. His first name means something. He's Jesus. Which means, Yahweh saves. God saves. In the opening part of the second part of your Bible, the New Testament, you shall, an angel says to Joseph, you will call his name Jesus. Here's why. Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means God saves. God rescues. God delivers. So he is Jesus. He is God who has come to deliver. He's the anointed one to do that. Jesus is the Christ. And he was promised in the Holy Scriptures, the first part of your Bible. He is the Son of God. I like to say, He is God the Son. The Bible does use the phrase, He's the Son of God, but sometimes people think that He's something less than God. Uh uh. He is God the Son. And He has been God the Son as long as the Father has been God the Father. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. He is your Creator. He's your king, your ruler, the anointed one who has come to save us from our sins. He is God. He's the prince of peace. Remember I said the problem is vertical first before it's horizontal. He is the source of peace. That's why he's the prince of peace. He's the source of peace. Peace comes from him. And he's the object, the first object of peace. We have peace restored with him. And then we have the possibility of peace with others. Savior of the world. He has come to save, deliver, to rescue. To rescue, save from what? To rescue from the consequences of not having a relationship with him. To rescue from the consequences of sin of having gone our own way rather than his way. He's come to save you, deliver you, rescue from that, but not just that. He's come to rescue you, save you, deliver you from him. Say what? Romans chapter 2 and verse 5 says this, that those who have not come to Christ are, quote, storing up wrath for themselves against the day of wrath. Storing up anger, storing up wrath. Whose wrath? Whose anger? The one who made you, who told you what to do, and you went your own route, and you continue to do that. And the Bible says that God's wrath, his anger, abides upon that. And you must be rescued, saved, delivered. <coughs> from not only the consequences of that on a, in, in life, but the consequence of that in terms of God's wrath, His anger upon us. That will be paid for. And it'll either be paid for by you forever, or you'll receive the payment that God has graciously made, God the Son has made for you on the cross. He's the Savior, then, of the world. Lord of all. Lord means master. He's my, he's my God. He's my creator. He's my king, my ruler. He's my master. And the Bible, then, has a number of passages that tell us about all of these as they relate to Jesus. 
Now I want you to note B on the top of page 22 then. This is who he is. Now this is what he did. He died, top of page 22, on the cross for our sins and was resurrected from the dead. He was delivered over to death, Romans 4, for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The Bible says elsewhere, for Christ died for sins once for all. Notice the righteous for who? The unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. So he died for our sins and was raised from the dead. Died for our sins. Here's what that means. You have to be saved. You have to be rescued. You have to be delivered. A payment is required for sin. Holy God looks at your sin, looks at me, looks at you, and his anger, his wrath rests upon us. And we will pay for that. Or we'll receive the payment he made for us. He died to make the payment because of your sins and because of my sins. And in doing that, this one who lived an absolutely perfect life was able to render an absolutely full sacrifice of death for you and me. And it satisfied the demands of a holy God. So thanks be to God, I don't have to pay for my sin. Thanks be to God, Jesus has paid for my sin. He has delivered me. He has rescued me. When that death, that perfect, infinite death for all of my sin, past, present, and future, is applied to me personally. And he's alive. He was raised. You see, death has no power over him. He was not dying because of his own sin. He was dying for our sin. Death has no power over him. He demonstrated his mastery over death by rising. And the Bible says he will come again. He's alive now. He's, he's seeing us right now. Jesus Christ, our maker, our God, our ruler, prince of peace, savior of the world, is alive right now, and he sees what we're doing right now. He died on the cross for our sins, all of them, and is alive now, raised from the dead. He sent forth his spirit and his word to give us life through a new heart and spirit. So how do I, I said I know a really good heart surgeon. Here's how he does that. The Holy Spirit of God, God the Spirit, moves upon your heart when you come to Jesus and changes you from the inside out. The Bible says this, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, it says. All of us were. But then it goes on to say, but God who is rich in mercy, while we were dead in our sins, made us alive. That's the phrase it uses. The Spirit of God moves upon the heart of the person, giving that sinful dead heart life now. It's a fancy term called regeneration, the impartation of life, spiritually. So how is this heart surgery done? The Spirit of God does it, giving you a new, a new heart. And because He died for all of your sins, and because He lived an absolutely perfect life, when you come to Him, because you have this changed heart, 
and you say, Lord, take me, and I want to follow you, all that he is is now applied to you. Unbelievable. His perfect life is applied to you. His complete sacrificial death is applied to you. So you not only have a new heart, but you have a new record before God. An absolutely clean and perfect record. Not because you're perfect, but because he's perfect. So he sends forth his, his spirit and his word. You, you hear the word. I'm giving you the word. His spirit moves on your heart and he gives you, he gives you new life. You receive Jesus and he's changing you from the inside out. D, forgiving all who will believe in him and crediting to us his perfect righteousness. How many of your sins are forgiven when you come to Jesus? All of them. So unlike most world religions and unlike many professing Christian denominations, you do not have work to do in order to go to heaven. Now, you will work for Jesus because you want to because you've been changed on the inside out, but you don't work to go to heaven. You work because you're going to heaven. Did you hear that? So I don't, I don't do it so I can get to heaven. I do it because I'm going to heaven, and I'm thankful for that. I know that I'm going to heaven. I know that, not because I'm good, but because a good and gracious God has done for me what I could not do for myself. And come what may, tomorrow, next week, next year, ten years from now, my destiny in eternity is sealed because it's not dependent upon me but upon the forgiveness and covering that I have through the Lord Jesus who's forgiven my sins, all of them, past, present, and unbelievably future. And only the gospel, the good news of grace, says that. Forgiving all of our sins for those who believe in him and then that results in reconciling us to the Father and adopting us into his, his family. Reconciling us. We now have peace with the Father. And so the Bible tells us, just straight out, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, and now we have been reconciled to God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then page 23, giving us the supreme gift of knowing and enjoying God in Christ forever. I have the reality of knowing Him, having an intimate relationship with Him now that will continue into eternity. Absolutely guaranteed, not by my performance, but by His grace. Let me give you one other verse on this and then we'll look at the peace that we can have with one another once we have peace with God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 says this, that those that he has predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he has also glorified. And you have four things there, predestined and called and justified and glorified, and they are all written in the past tense. And three of them, if you've come to Jesus, have already occurred, predestined, called, and justified. And one of them, glorified, will happen in the future. You'll be in glory. You'll have a new body. 
But why is it in the past tense? Glorified. Why? Because from God's standpoint, ain't nothing can keep it from happening. It's as good as done. It's guaranteed by His grace. The gospel enables us to have then peace with God. That's most important. Now, friend, we're going to see quickly, then in turn we can have peace with others. And if not interpersonal peace, then personal peace in the midst of relationships with others. But before I move on quickly, ask yourself, do I believe everything that was just said? Do I believe that Jesus is all of those things? Do I believe Jesus did all of those things? Do I believe I am who God says I am? Not what I would like to think of myself as. And if the answer to that is, yes, I believe he is. Yes, I believe he did. And yes, I believe I am. Then before you leave today, you can have a new heart. By God, the heart surgeon. And you can have peace with him. Now, he enables us then with that new heart to have internal peace and peace with others. Having given us peace with God, Jesus enables us to mirror his peace to others by inspiring us to love, worship, glorify, obey, and serve God with all our hearts. You all remember a few weeks ago we started this thing and I said, look, in the midst of this circumstance, difficult though it be, someone who may not be cooperative, you can still achieve eternal benefits through this. Growing in Christ, glorifying God, serving others. That's in your notes. But if you don't have a changed heart, none of that appeals to you. Serving others, glorifying God, growing in Christ. I came here for you to fix that dude. I want him, I want her, I want it fixed. But when you have this changed heart, you've been reconciled to God. Now you desire, you're inspired to, motivated to love, worship, glorify, obey, serve God with all of our hearts. Secondly, he unites us in spirit and purpose with other believers in his body, the church. This is my 30-second commercial for church. Not necessarily this church. Church. I'm telling you, you live in a fallen world. I live in a fallen world. And even though you come to Jesus, it's still a fallen world. And you still struggle, and I still struggle. And guess what you need? You need one another. You need other people who can encourage you and you can encourage in your newfound walk with him. And that's why God has given the church. If it's not this church, fine, then you find a church where you can learn about God, learn about yourself, and learn how to walk with him in this new life. Page 24. Empowering us to lovingly restore and forgive others, even our enemies. You know, um, I don't get mad, I get even. That's the natural way. What you're reading right there is not natural, it is super natural. That's different. But that's what Jesus empowers and enables us to do, things that are not natural. To lovingly restore and forgive others. Now, how can I forgive somebody even if they don't want it, how can I forgive somebody? Next week's lesson is all about forgiveness. So I encourage you to come. But for now, let me say this. The reason that you can forgive, have the capacity to forgive others, is because Jesus has first forgiven you. 
Once you know the enormity of what Jesus has forgiven you of, it becomes much easier to forgive others. Not always easy, easier to forgive others. He empowers us to do that. And then lastly, enabling us to put off sinful ways and to be renewed in his likeness. That's a fancy term for saying that we're renewed in his likeness. We, we become gradually, day by day, more like Jesus, which is what he wants because that's how he brings glory to himself. He wants to see himself reflected in those he's made in his image. And he is remaking his image in people that he is rescuing, delivering, saving from their sin. And day by day, he conforms you, works on you, works through your circumstances to make you more like him. The last point's on page 25. He then makes us ambassadors of his life-giving, reconciling power. Reconciling power. An ambassador is somebody who gives the message of another, gives the message of a king. King Jesus then gives you this message to give to other people. You're living it, you're displaying it, and you're mouthing it as well. God enables us to be reconciled to him and to be reconciled to each other. But it starts with being reconciled to him. We're going to pray and we're going to, we're going to finish. But I ask you just a bit ago, do you believe all of those things about who Jesus is and what he did and who you are and what, you're, what you need? If you do, you can express that belief to him right now from your heart to him as we bow and pray in just a moment.